Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of 219 Green Connect, where we explore topics about green living and other fresh ideas in Northwest Indiana and beyond. For past show archives, news, and upcoming events, you can check out our website at 219greenconnect.com or join us on Facebook or Twitter. Our ID on both sites is 219 Green Connect. You can also subscribe to this podcast via iTunes. I'm your host, Kathy Sipple, and with me today I have Mario Longoni from the Field Museum and also Laura Gonzalez, also from the Field Museum. I'm going to let both of you actually talk about your roles there. And Mario, do you want to go first? Sure. I've actually been here quite a while, since like 96, and working in the Calumet region since like 2001. If anybody out there is a fisherman, I may well have interviewed them because I talked to over 100 fishermen in the region at that time, really about what they're catching and and what they know about it. And I've continued to work in the region doing anthropology, which is really looking at the assets people have, the cultural assets they have, that they can use to address the challenges that they face as communities or as a region. And the heritage area is really about um, that sort of process. Very cool. I definitely love fishing, so I'd love to talk to you more about that at some point, <laughs> maybe in a different <laughs> podcast. And Laura, what about you? Um, I am most recently hired about the past six months working on the Heritage Area Project, specifically uh, doing communications and the public engagement piece for the project. Um, so basically getting the word out to the public about what this thing is and um, getting people excited about the project. And Good. where were you? You were nice enough in the region. Oh, in the region, I was previously. Um, I did some work with Indiana University Northwest, and also I was um, environmental education coordinator at the Solid Waste District for Lake County, Indiana. Great. So well, I've I been around the region for a while a, as well. Yeah, I probably have seen you at an Earth Day or two. I bet. <laughs> yep, <laughs> probably. Like yeah, yeah. Well, I am very interested to to know more about this topic. I know that both of you have been working very hard on the creation of a Calumet National Heritage Area, and I thought it might be a good start just to unpack that phrase, and let's talk about where is the Calumet region? Where is the area that we're talking about? So we're really talking about, you know, if you think of Lake Michigan as an elephant here, the land that wraps around that. So um, you can think about the Pullman National Monument on the, you know, on the west, and then on the east you've got the National Lakeshore and the Michigan border um, really is the boundary on the other end, and it's that whole region in between. And it's got enormous biodiversity, what they call dune and swale habitat, where you've got a different set of plants growing at the top of the ridge, on top of the dune, and then in the spaces in between it's different. You've got all your economic uh, activity going on, the heavy industry, which isn't just steel, but also, you know, refining and chemicals and food processing. And then you got the huge cultural diversity, um, really everything, African-American, ethnic European descendants, and, and uh, you know, more recent Latino immigrants, too. Yeah, so I have a little bit of an idea, uh, pretty much just what I've learned from you, honestly, about what a national heritage area is. Um, I'm kind of assuming it's about identifying, protecting, and preserving all of these different diverse resources that relate to our heritage. 
is that, is that true? What, what? Tell me a little bit more about you know what would be involved with making our area into one of these, and also a little bit about you know the why behind it. What are the benefits? Okay, so heritage areas. Just to start with that piece um, briefly, they're not national parks. They're lived in landscapes. So that's it's the cities, the towns, and all those things. And then there can be nature in there as well, but it's not land that's controlled, owned, or bought in any way by any government entity. It's really a designation for, for places that we live and work and, and recreate. Um, and they're public-private partnerships, so there always has to be a local management entity, and the federal government is providing funds um, to support that, matching funds and technical support, but the federal government is not the managers. And it really has to be developed locally. There has to be some kind of grassroots efforts where organizations locally come together and they do a feasibility study and go to the government and say, we want this. We want you to recognize us through the Congress um, as an NHA. And then there's 49 of them in the, in the country currently, but the very first one was in 1984 created, and that's the I&M Canal. Um, that really starts just south of Chicago here, south and west, and goes all along the Illinois River. Um, and so then I think you asked why we would want to do one for Calumet, I think. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess in, in general, what are the, the benefits? Are you know, Is there an economic impact? Is there a preservation impact? I'm imagining probably many potential positive things that could come from it. But, yeah, I'm just wondering... What, what has made it something that has, you know, kind of made you feel passionate about this project? Yeah, I think for me personally, I, one way I describe it is too is, yes, it's branding, and that's a great thing, but that branding on one hand is directed outward to people who might come and visit so you get tourism and tourism dollars, but it's also directed inward so that it's really about people in this region where we hear words like rust belt, and when you hear region rat, when people in the region <laughs> use it, they're using it as a positive thing. But, mm -hmm. you know, there's a way in which people can use it pejoratively. Or for people from outside the region, they can just think of it as like, oh, my God, Gary, Indiana. You know, like right. that's a place that nobody would want to go. And I think it's important in this case to get this designation because it can really help change people's perception of the region where they live and recognize that we live in a nationally important place. There are animals and plants and habitats here that exist nowhere else. And we are also the place that built, you look at the Chicago skyline and we made the steel that built that. And we still crank out those Fords, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and send them to the whole world. And this isn't happening everywhere else in the country. Um, and so to take that pride and have that be something that helps people to get civically engaged. Economically, very specifically, you know, Every dollar the federal government puts into a heritage area, um, the studies indicate that there's $5.50 of the matching investment that it typically attracts um, to go along with it. So you really got a multiplier of almost six um, in mm -hmm. terms of that. And it also, in this case, one of the reasons we're really pushing it for this region is the boundary. It's the Indiana-Illinois border. It, in many ways, is a, a barrier that has kept people that have really a lot in common on both sides of the border from connecting with each other. And a heritage area could do the kind of convening function that would bring people together and help create networks across the border and coordinate, um, you know, programming and trails and 
wayfinding and these different things that would help make a cohesive region and make it something that, you know, is more economically, socially, culturally functional. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds like a much-needed idea. <laughs> As somebody that's lived on both sides of those state lines, you know, I agree that it, it's crazy. You know, we really do depend on one another for our existence. It's very symbiotic. And I am a little sad when I go into Chicago and people think that we are only what they can see from driving through on the Skyway on their way to Harbor Country or something. Like, if you just get off and give it a chance and go to a park or, you know, go to one of our many, many protected areas, it, there's just so much. And so I think what you're, you're saying is this will give people who live here a better way to understand the importance of what they may otherwise take for granted and maybe we'll yeah. get us our due with people that think of us as flyover territory. Yeah, so exactly. I, I like that. I like that. Um, yeah. So let you know. Let's tell people a little bit about where they can find out more. You were nice enough to provide a website for me and some PDFs. I believe that all came from there. So go ahead and tell people how they can find you, and maybe also where you are as far as you know what's happened in the project, what's happening now, and what okay. is you know kind of on the line to happen next. Um, if, they want to, if anybody wants to find out more information, uh, you can go to the Calumet Heritage Partnership uh, website, which is calumetheritage.org. Um, Calumet Heritage Partnership is a nonprofit bi-state organization that has been, you know, uh, one of the, actually the leading uh, organization, um, as well as the Field Museum, to take on the effort to create a heritage area. Um, on the Calumet Heritage Partnership uh, website, there's tons of resources to look through um, to stay engaged. You can join our emailing list, um, sign up for our monthly newsletter, as well as we're on social media, so Facebook and Twitter as Calumet Heritage. Um, so, and as far as where we are in the process right now, in the feasibility study process, and I'll have Mario kind of explain a little bit more on that. So right now we've finished some initial stages of really getting together themes and national significance, but um, we're going to have really public meetings starting probably in June, and that's going to be the next big chance for large numbers of people to um, get involved, to come to these meetings and let us know, hey, you got the boundary right or you got the boundary wrong, or you got the themes right or you got them wrong, or I don't like this management plan that you've come up with. So to really have a say in what gets ultimately proposed um, to the federal government. And then hopefully we'll be submitting the plan in the fall for Park Service approval, and then the Park Service will be able to, you know, by giving us their stamp of approval, that helps us then to go to Congress and say, okay, authorize us as a heritage area, because you do need congressional authorization for a heritage area to get that, to get that created. Um, and if people want to get involved sooner, um, I think we're probably one of the areas we're going to have a little more outreach is parts of Porter County, Valparaiso, and a little bit point south. So if you go to the website, you should watch for maybe some upcoming public meetings, some, some outreach meetings, and even some of the other public meetings where we do just what we're doing here, where we talk more about it. Um, we'll post some of that stuff on Facebook and the website as well so that people can have a chance even before June to, to mm -hmm. have their voices heard. Well, and that's also great I, to hear. Mm -hmm. 
I'm not sure if you guys awesome. know, but I'm I'm actually in Valparaiso in Porter County, so I'll be looking oh, for those okay. meetings. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great, great. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to add to that, if there's anybody out there listening that, you know, wants to learn more and their organization or in their network, you know, they can request a representative from Calumet Heritage Partnership or someone from the initiative to come out and speak with their group. They can find that request form online through the Calumet Heritage Partnership website as well. Great. Well, I kind of try to make this known to all speakers, but especially for you since you've got so much coming up. Uh, I'm sure you have been in contact with our local green drinks. We now are up to three chapters here in northwest Indiana. Uh, I'd be happy to make sure that they hear this podcast and and get that link. Great. And we're going to be doing some of the green drinks coming up. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do Gary, and I think we're going to do... We are going to do um, not this coming Monday, but the following Monday at at the Greek uh, pizzeria in Valpo. Yep. Coming Good. up. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So we'll be giving a, a brief, showing a brief movie and kind of a review about, you know, what's going on with the heritage area then. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear it. So it sounds like there are multiple organizations involved in this. Obviously, you're both representing the Field Museum. Have there been other partners in this process so far that should be given acknowledgement? So Calumet Heritage Partnership is a multi-organization organization, organization. (laughs) Um, and so there's people from, you know, Valparaiso University, Calumet College of St. Joseph has been involved, South Shore Arts is a participant in in the feasibility study, but also in in CHP. Um, Calumet Stewardship Initiative has put on the Calumet Summit for the last two rounds, it happens every other year, and they have 35 members in CSI, um, and they've really gotten behind this idea of the heritage area and having the summit really endorsing um, the heritage area. But also the Millennium Reserve in Illinois, that plan, um, they've endorsed the heritage area as a priority project to have implemented, and the Marquette plan on the Indiana side of the border has um, endorsed the heritage area as a good idea for mm-hmm. for the region. So the support is coming together behind the idea. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, it certainly makes sense to me. I think that we do live in kind of an interesting area that's, you know, two different states. As you mentioned, just a lot of biodiversity and other types of diversity going on. Not all of it always, you know, seen by you know, outside is is positive, and I do personally see a lot of positive here. Can you give some idea of what it might look like to to somebody visiting in our area post us becoming, you know, this heritage area? Will there be signage, or how how will this be des- designated or otherwise known? Yeah, a lot of what a heritage area does on the ground is this wayfinding, and wayfinding is not just go this way to get to this place, but then labeling what those places are and telling you why they're relevant. So certainly wayfinding is one of the ways that people will see the heritage area on the ground. But then there's also could be programming that the heritage area does. I know I went to the Cleveland, um, the uh, Ohio and Erie Canalway heritage area, and they had these great quests that you would go on, and it was really riddles and rhymes that you had to fill in the clues, and you filled in the clues by, in one sense, you solved one clue and it told you the next place to go, and you would go there and that would give you the next clue. But along the way, 
you were learning about each of those things. So it was a it was a flour mill. It was a it was a canal where the canal boats would come through, bringing the grain and such, and a water wheel. And you were really exploring this whole area, this industrial area along the canal, but doing it through the through the clues. And it made it really fun to kind of to, to pursue learning that information. And you know, some heritage areas develop whole like museums in Pittsburgh. They've got an entire um, museum, and the uh, what is it called? The I'm going to forget the name of it, but it's the blast furnace. Um, anyway, it's one of the major furnaces that was in the in the uh, Pennsylvania Pittsburgh area for a long time, and you can visit that um, and really learn about the process of steel making. So it's possible that we can have those kinds of sites developed across the region too, so that people could could really learn what, what's happened here over the years. And of course, there can be also directing people to the vibrant current cultural scene, whether it's pierogi fest or annunciata fest or whatever it, whatever it might be um, in the region that's going on. Well, that, that really makes sense to me. I remember probably seven years ago or so attending a meeting hosted, I believe, by the Porter County Tourism folks and they had hired an outside agency called Destination Development out of, I believe, Seattle. And they were talking about the importance of wayfinding and just as being people who came into our area, didn't know the cool places to go. You know, they yeah. found them, but it took a lot of work. You know, that was kind of the report card that I remember getting from them. And they had suggested themes, you know, kind of like this. So I don't know if any of that has shown up in your research, but it, it definitely seems to dovetail exactly what I remember hearing. So that's that's really cool that something's happening with that. <laughs> and there's so much that's kind of invisible if you don't have some help with that. I mean, like the whole arts yeah. and gallery scene in Hammond mm -hmm. and, and East Chicago with the hardware store that's an art gallery. Oh, is. yeah, David Mueller, yeah. give him a little shout-out for Paul Henry's. Yeah. Love that place. It's a fun, quirky little place, and he does so much, you know, for the art community. It's wonderful. Um, and it ties right good. in blue-collar heritage theme because you see, the, oh, yeah. you see the old hardware and equipment mm -hmm. <laughs> right next to the paintings, right? So Yeah, exactly. I love that place. And he just, you know, he has these, uh, I think, Thursday night jams and opens it up to musicians as well. So it's, it's a real hub for culture there in, in Hammond. You know, I'm, I'm curious, too. Go ahead. There's several of those hidden gems throughout the Calumet region that – I know I've, I've lived in the Calumet region all my life, but I haven't heard of some of these places. So even for someone living in our region, you know, it illuminates those special places that, you know, you might not be aware of. Right, yeah. And um, I, I think that all of that sounds great. And now with technology and apps and all kinds of things like this, it just seems like there's probably a multimedia component that could be overlaid into it to make it, you know, really interactive regardless of how people are, you know, experiencing the the event. And uh, one thing I was also going to ask about, it's just crazy, but I think when people go through Indiana, you know, we've only got a certain number of miles if you're connecting Chicago to harbor country over there in Michigan, but if you looked at our billboards, you would just think all we did was, you know, sell fireworks and host gentlemen at gentlemen's clubs and have casinos, you know. <laughs> That's about it. So, like, mm -hmm. all this cool stuff usually doesn't make its way onto a billboard. And, you know, it's just 
that's just something that drives me crazy. I just think, where is all the visibility for the people who are driving by that don't even know to go to an app or go to a website? You know, how do we capture those eyeballs or, you know, that imagination and divert? Yeah. That's a big question. And I don't expect you to solve it, but... <laughs> like, no, and some of that would be elevating, too, sometimes stuff that's there in terms of, you know, all those great promotional posters that have always centered around the South Shoreline where the different mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. to see that you can get to by the train. There's so many of those posters that were made both historically in the 20s and 30s but then made again in recent years. I mean, I could imagine something. Wouldn't it be great to have some of those put up as billboards mm-hmm. along 94, you know? That's a great idea. <laughs> so, and, you know, you know, I know it's it the kind of money, thing where then a heritage yeah. area might be able to fundraise or, or coordinate an effort to get something mm-hmm. like that done mm-hmm. um, yeah. to change that perception. I always think if people would just get off the highway and experience it for themselves, they would be pretty amazed at what they find. But, yeah. you know, what you see from the highway definitely does not call out and make you want to, you know, it, or it doesn't suggest that all these really kind of cool things await. So I'm really yeah. anxious to see how this goes. So what do, you, what do you suppose is the timeline? You know, once it gets to this um, feasibility study stage, what what's kind of typical? Is there a typical... The thing is, there's not really typical, and you also have to go Mm -hmm. at the pace that sort of suits the public. Like, we thought we were going to be Mm -hmm. ahead of the schedule now, but right now we're kind of like, we have people saying, like, no, you need to rethink this bit, or you need to rethink that bit. So we're taking the time to rethink those and get more voices involved. But, you know, we're pretty sure at this point that end of June-ish we'll be doing the second round of public meetings. And then after that, we incorporate that feedback and we write the feasibility study so that by the fall, you know, we should be submitting it for submitting it to the park service to get their approval. Now, going through Congress is another thing altogether, but, you know, we're hopeful that we're currently working on lining up our ducks in terms of legislative support, congressional support, and really figuring out what the best route by which to introduce it, whether it means coming through the House, which is the traditional way to do it, or whether we come through the Senate and be a little bit unorthodox. (laughs) And we don't know yet. It's Mm going to kind of depend on things that happen in November. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Be waiting with bated breath to find out how that goes. Yeah. 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 Well, and so is there anything typically that, that waylays this kind of a plan? You know, is there any reason that people wouldn't want this to happen? Well, there's a certain contingent that can be very concerned about. I mean, you know that there were concerns when the National Lecture was created that there was, you know, government eminent domain Mm -hmm. involved. And people get very concerned that even though there's no land takings involved in this process, um, that creating of a federal designation can be a pathway to other kinds of set-asides and other kinds of conservation designations. And they're opposed to it for those reasons, because they're committed to a private, a private property model mm-hmm. um, in terms of how resources get managed. So, and that takes many forms. I can take corporate forms, individ, you know, the also, but individuals who are very, mm-hmm. I guess you'd say libertarian, um, as far as any kind of government designation. Well, thanks for that. Very tactfully answered. (laughs) 
I'm just curious too about the field decisions uh, decision to kind of enter into this project. How does it fit with um, you know with their mission overall? Yeah, I know that's a good question. You know, we have such extensive collections from the natural world, collections from the cultural world, that really what we're experts in are these is you know really looking at nature as a set of assets. The biodiversity of nature is what makes it resilient to change. And that the diversity of culture is also what makes it resilient to change. And so since we know that, we like to go out in the communities and help people use that lesson, to leverage that lesson to improve their own lives so that they can do things like you know, value your ethnic Eastern European heritage, your African American heritage, your Latino heritage, bring them together, elevate them within a heritage area because that's what's going to make you as a community stronger, able to attract more economic opportunity, able to have more people come in and view you positively and feel more positive about yourselves. You know, and we, we see that, we know that because we see it in all the cultures that we highlight across the museum, across our, our exhibits and our displays. And so we kind of see it as our role to, to go out and, and share that message. And really, too, ecologically, we've been involved ecologically in the Calumet region with making collections and, and collecting, you know, plants and animals from the region since, like, the 20s. Um, we have extensive Calumet collections. And so, again, it's our job as a museum to help see biodiversity in the world get preserved, not just to catalog it, but to help see it preserved. And that's really what we try to do. Uh, some of our earliest programs in the Calumet region were things like SEEP, the Calumet Environmental Education Partnership, which was, you know, we had third, fourth, and fifth graders doing Mighty Acorns, and sixth, seventh, and eighth doing Earth Force, and, and then high school students doing Kimby, Calumet is my backyard. And we're still doing those programs in the region. Um, so, and in fact, we've moved into Indiana through Dunes Learning Center with those programs. So we're really, we really do a lot um, across the region and have been pretty involved for, for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. So this was a little bit of a no-brainer in some sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does seem like a great fit. Well, I, I want to thank both of you for being here today, and uh, I will help you as best I am able to get the word out. I um, would also just like to mention, since you mentioned biodiversity and collecting samples, just want to pass along a few little news items. I know that BioBlitz is coming to Indiana Dunes on May 20th and 21st, and uh, the Dunes National Lakeshore is looking for lots of people who can help count species during those two days. So if you're interested in that, you can either, you know, probably the best way is just to call the visitor center at the, the Dunes National Lakeshore. The number is 219-395-1882. Uh, or you can go to the National Park Service website. It's nps.gov forward slash INDU, and you've got to kind of click down and get to BioBlitz. So that's one way to do it. I'm sure it's out there on social media too, or if you just Google BioBlitz May 21st, Indiana Dunes, you'll probably find it as well. And another uh, event that I'd like to put the word out about is the, we hope will be first annual, 2016 Co-Thrive Epic Skill Swap. And that'll be happening at Tall Tree Arboretum and Gardens on Sunday, June 26th. And that is going to be a fundraiser and a membership drive for the newly formed Co-Thrive Time Bank. So the idea behind that is to help 
folks, uh, learn new skills, make ourselves more sustainable, you know, by beginning, getting smarter about how to do things, teaching others, and it should be a lot of fun too. So it's a sliding scale ticket, uh, minimum ticket price suggested donation, $10 up to whatever you can afford. But you can find out more info on that at uh, cothrive.org. And I'm not sure the event is on the front page yet, but it will be soon. So cothrive.org, look for the Epic Skill Swap. And anything else that you guys would like to say before we, we just have about a minute or two? Well, thank you, Kathy, for, for having us on. And like I said before, if anybody wants to get more information, visit calumetheritage.org. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter as Calumet Heritage. Great, and I'm glad you've got those uh, connections right from your homepage, too, so very easy to find and get to. Well, thank you again, and we'll look forward to uh, seeing you at meetings here in Valparaiso and all throughout the region. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye now.